Good morning, everyone. The laughable grace of God. You know, in just a few weeks, uh, my wife and I, Lynn, are going to be traveling to Raleigh, North Carolina. It happens to be the 10th anniversary of our eldest daughter's marriage. Molly and Matt are going to celebrate their 10th anniversary by leaving their two children to grandma and grandpa for a few days and headed off to some uh, place of renewal. And you'd think that, you know, after 10 years, you might want some adventure, you might want uh, to, to go off and, and engage in some fun activity, but I got a feeling mostly they're just going to look forward to sleeping through the night without a crying child waking them uh, because they're hungry or dirty or something. Um, many of you guys know also, uh, because this happened in, while we were here uh, serving the church, that Molly and Matt lost their first child. Uh, it was a, a pregnancy that early in the pregnancy, it became, they became aware that there were some genetic abnormalities. And at 36 weeks, uh, they delivered a stillborn child. And the fact that they knew ahead of time didn't make it any easier. We were actually greatly worried about them at that time. And uh, it was a boy and they named the boy Isaac. And later, when I was talking to my daughter Molly, she revealed the reasoning behind that choice of the name. The choice was she, knowing that this child would never have an opportunity to give meaning to his own name. He wouldn't live long enough to make a name for himself. They wanted to give him a name that had huge significance. And they chose Isaac because for them, this also was a child of promise. Now, I don't think they really understood that Isaac stands for he laughs. That's the story in Genesis that we're reading here. Uh, not only did Sarah laugh, as we just heard uh, in the text, but in the 17th chapter, Abraham laughs at the whole idea of it. It's laughable that we're going to now have a child. But the interesting thing is in the 21st chapter, they're laughing again with joy at the birth of Isaac. John Steinbeck, in a book that you might be familiar with, known as The Winter of Our Discontent, tells the story of Mary and Ethan Hawley. Ethan's a Harvard graduate. They live together with their children in one of those seaport villages along the Atlantic coast somewhere between New York and Boston. If you've ever been along that coastline, you know, there's all these little hamlets and villages between Long Island and up the Connecticut coast. And it's a town that Ethan knows well because his family has been there for multiple generations, going all the way back to the whaling industry when his great-grandfather was a big ship's captain in the whaling industry. And they trace their history in American history all the way back to the Mayflower. So Ethan and Mary Hawley's story is an American story. 
And the story begins on Good Friday morning. And it tells the story of lost promise and squandered inheritance. Ethan's 36 years old, and he's made a mess of his own life. He's working now as a grocery store clerk for the very store he used to own in a town where his family used to be quite prominent. And with so much going for him, the best education, a family name, a loving partner, two wonderful, healthy children, Ethan Hawley is in a life where the wheels are beginning to come off. The promise of his early years had turned into despair and hopelessness and led to a series of compromises in his life, the effect of which led to the gradual debasement of his own morality. And it's a demise that Ethan Hawley is entirely complicit with. He'd lost his way. And he was on his way to much more than just financial ruin. Mr. Baker, the president of the National Bank there in town, was on his way, and he stops for a little conversation with Ethan Hawley, and Ethan's sweeping the street, and they exchange pleasantries and talk a little bit about investments, and then they turn to a conversation begun by Mr. Baker, and he says, Ethan, now that's what I don't understand. Anybody can go broke. What I don't see is why you stay broke. A man of your family and background and education, it doesn't have to be permanent unless your blood has lost its guts. What knocked you out, Ethan? What keeps you knocked out? And then Ethan starts with an angry retort, writes Steinbeck. Of course, you don't understand. You never had it. And then he slowly sweeps a small circle of gum wrappers and cigarette butts to the curb. Then he says, men don't get knocked out. I mean, they can fight back against the big things. What kills them is erosion. They get nudged into failure. They get slowly scared. I'm scared. Long Island Lighting Company might turn off my lights, and my wife needs clothes, and my children need shoes and fun. And What if they can't get an education, or I can't afford it? And the monthly bills, and the doctors, and the teeth. And suppose I can't stay healthy enough to sweep this sidewalk. Of course you don't understand. It's slow. It rots out your guts. I can't think beyond next month's payment on the refrigerator. I hate my job, and I'm scared I'll lose it. Now, with that graphic language, Steinbeck critiques the world of erosion in American society in the 1960s. Now, our story this morning about Abraham and Sarah is not a story about losing their inheritance. They were expecting to start one, but it was delayed, and they become hopeless. Abraham and Sarah spent more than a season of their life together with with an as-yet-unfulfilled promise of God. 
They'd begun in the life of faith well enough. They'd left their home, Ur of the Chaldees, as an act of faith. But the promise of God was so long in coming, 99 years old now, neither of them could see how God could possibly keep that promise of a future with hope and life. God had promised Sarah and Abraham a life. The Lord had promised them that Sarah would get pregnant and conceive and produce an heir. But that was not only not on the horizon, it was so exceedingly, increasingly distant hope with every advancing year that they had lost hope. They'd become skeptical and cynical. You know the story. I mean, when the Lord seemed delayed and seemed unwilling or incapable of fulfilling the promise, Sarah provided her assistant, Hagar, to Abraham. It's got to be the first recorded instance of surrogate motherhood. It's like us. I mean, how prone are we when God's promise is delayed? How prone are we to take over and try and fulfill it ourselves? What a winter of discontent that act led to between Isaac and Ishmael, between Jews and Arabs. It's a winter of discontent that's not over yet. Reminds me of a line from C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia in the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. By taking matters into their own hands, Abraham and Sarah unwittingly launched a long season where it's always winter, but never Christmas. Now, Abraham and Sarah are not Ethan and Mary Hawley, but they knew a season of discontent. They knew the erosion of hope. We seem to be in a season of discontent in our country Again, this week is the beginning of summer, but we seem to be in a winter of discontent. An angry man this week opens fire with gunshots on members of Congress preparing for a friendly baseball game. James Hodgkinson became so cynical, so angry about the way things were going in the country, that he took matters into his own hands and he shot four members of the Republican congressional team practicing for the game. Disappointment leads to discontentment, leads to skepticism, leads to cynicism and breeds contempt. The story for Abraham and Sarah doesn't end there, though. These two eventually make it into the Hall of Faith in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. They are great paragons of faith. Abraham gets the award for lifetime achievement in a divine drama. And it's the Apostle Paul who hands it to him. Actually, it really should be more... uh, best supporting actor, because this story is really about the faithfulness of the Lord, who's the primary driver in the story. And 
somehow I find it comforting that the great people of faith weren't always that way. It's hopeful to me. They didn't always remain faithful, but in the end, they made it into the hall of faith. It gives me hope that along the way, in the end, I too might be found faithful. The Abrahamic covenant is one that is without conditions. It begins with this free and unmerited favor of God who chooses to bind himself to these two hapless wanderers for no apparent reason. There was nothing in them. It was God's gift of grace. The world of barrenness is replaced by one of hope and promise through faith. And that's always the way it happens. There's more than one way to experience barrenness in this life. Erosion of hope begins within and leads to compromises in our lives. And we justify that, well, you know, the end justifies the means. We realize there's this increasing emptiness in our lives and this growing fear about the future. And we may find ourselves engaged in some addictive behaviors, some way to try and just fill the emptiness. You and I might feel like hapless wanderers through life today. You may feel like there's some gnawing barrenness in your own life. You may have become cynical yourself, skeptical about all this faith stuff. Like Abraham and Sarah, you might find yourself snickering in all this conversation about salvation and about resurrection about the presence of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I've heard that before. Walter Brueggemann puts it this way, faith is not a reasonable act which fits into the normal scheme of life and perception. The promise of the gospel is not a conventional piece of wisdom that's easily accommodated to everything else. Embrace of this radical Gospel requires shattering and discontinuity of our worldviews. End quote. Or as the book of Hebrews puts it, faith is the conviction of things unseen. The assurance of things we hope for. Well, as you know in the story, God has the last laugh. For two years after Molly and Matt lost Isaac, we prayed for them to have another child and to know the joy of parenting. They were told by their physicians to wait a year. There was no reason to believe that the genetic malady that they'd experienced in their first pregnancy would be reproduced. They waited a year. And then after a year of hoping and praying and trying to get pregnant, there was still no pregnancy, and we were praying with and for them. Just about the time they were beginning to do some genetic counseling to find out if they needed some intervention or some kind of assistance, 
they got pregnant. And they had Nolan, their second son. And then a couple years later, along came Madison, who's just turned a year in June. And now they have two healthy, demanding, crying bundles of laughter and joy from whom they need a vacation. I don't know if you know Jim Gafkin, the comedian, but I, I, he's got some wonderful humor. He says, every night before I get my one hour of sleep, I have the same thought. Well, that's a wrap on another day of acting like I know what I'm doing. And he goes on to say, I wish I were exaggerating, but I'm not. Most of the time, I feel entirely unqualified to be a parent, and I call this being awake. <laughs> I think most of us who've been parents know that feeling. That's why we can chuckle. We know we're unqualified for it, and we might feel unqualified in life itself. We might feel unqualified as followers of this Savior, the one who's promised us life. But you're in good company because you're in the company of people like Abraham and Sarah who didn't let cynicism and didn't let discontent overtake their life. God's laughable, unimaginable grace unfolded in their lives. And it's unfolding in our lives. It's unfolding in your life. Believe in it. Trust in it. Rest secured in God's promises, God's power, and God's presence. We know God's presence most thoroughly and best through Jesus Christ, His Son, and we know his presence present with us in the Holy Spirit. So don't give up. We might be found faithful at the end. God's grace is present, powerful, and his promises are sure. Thanks be to God. Amen.